this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I've had some people come up uh, live and in person. Mikey, appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. And with me is a connection of a connection of a good friend, Owen Jones. I'm sitting here with Ellen Bush and a title to be determined probably after this episode. But (laughs) (laughs) Owen had introduced us. And just over dinner a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, some very interesting conversations and I thought it would be uh, a wonderful podcast episode. And so with that, Ellen, thanks for making the time and so great to see you again. Thanks. It's great to be here. Doing good so far. Nice job. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So um, where did you want to start? Because there's so many topics that you had suggested and I think they're all fascinating and wonderful and I'll just turn it over to you and we can just let it rip. Um, well, I think the logical place to start is with my childhood and the diagnosis of being dyslexic and all of the consequences that comes along with that. And how old um, were you when you were diagnosed? So I was, I believe, six or seven years old. Um, I was pulled out of either first or second grade normal classes and sent to a separate classroom with a few other little kids and um, put through a whole series of tests. And shortly thereafter, um, I guess my parents were notified that I was dyslexic. Um, what was the trigger event? Why did they test you and pull you out? What was going on? Sure. Um, well, a lot of kids were starting to learn to read. Um, and this is something I'm not completely clear on simply because of my age, um, at that time. So I was told that I didn't have a a dominant eye. Hmm. And I remember going to this classroom working with this teacher one-on-one and I would stand maybe 10 feet from her. She would stand directly in front of me and she would bounce a ball towards me, right towards my center line. And I needed to catch the ball. Well, she sent it right to my center line. So I caught it with both hands. Perfectly logical thing to do. I would. That's how I was taught. (laughs) Yeah. So what they were looking for, what I was told later is for a dominant hand to see if I would reach for the ball with either my right hand or my left hand. And I didn't. I reached for it with both hands. You throw it to the center of me, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. And apparently having a dominant hand meant having a dominant eye. And the theory was at that time that without that, a child could not learn to read. And that was why. And then that started a whole series of testing. And I still to this day remember 
watching the face on that teacher and her dismay as I caught the ball with both hands. She couldn't hide her, really dismay is probably the best word, Hmm. but I wasn't doing it right was the message I was getting. Even at six years old, I knew there was something wrong. I had been separated from my classmates and now I had to go do all this separate stuff. So that was the beginning. Doesn't sound like the most scientific test. I yeah. mean, this is kind of reminding me of like bloodletting or, you know, yeah. weighing the witch in Monty yep. Python. Like if yeah. you weigh more than a duck, you're dyslexic. I can't believe this. <laughs> well, yes. And you also have to realize that this was the 1970s. So I'm sure teaching and learning theory has tra- changed dramatically over the, you know, the last couple decades. Um, and then... I was, like I said, was given a series of tests, um, including the WIS test, um, which measures all different kinds of intelligence. And in some areas I scored really, really well. And in some areas I had low scores, Um, particularly in math. And then later on when I started to learn to read, my reading scores were low. So it is at that point that the dyslexic label was stuck on my forehead. <laughs> and unfortunately then, that came along with an academic death sentence. Um, my parents were essentially told, flat out told, um, that I was never going to be academically successful. Um, college was out of the question. I might graduate from high school, um, but I really wasn't going to be an independent functioning adult in our society. And... I had these conversations with my parents as an adult, not as a child, just to clarify that. So you didn't know that that was the perception? No, but I felt it as a child by how I was treated by the teachers and okay. the administrators, and particularly the special ed teachers. And then really the, the kicker was um, one administrator told my mother that I, she really shouldn't worry that I was pretty enough to marry well. yeah and now i went to school in croton hudson which is a westchester county new york city suburb and it is one of the best public school systems in the state of new york and even with that that was what the bias and what i faced wow so i was treated as if i was stupid and incapable and i got that message every day And I struggled in certain areas and in other areas I excelled. And they didn't look at where I was excelling. And what were those areas? Where did you have a proficiency? It was really interesting. So the WIST tests, um, two of the areas that I excelled at were logic and abstract reasoning. And in the abstract reasoning, I scored in the 100th percentile. Now this is at age seven. And then in logic, I scored in the 98th percentile, which is pretty extraordinary. So on one hand, I had these enormous strengths, and then I had these weaknesses. And they were very difficult to reconcile. So I understood what was happening around me. I understood what the teachers were thinking. You know, when they patted me on the head and said, oh, don't worry about it, honey, you'll be just fine. You know, that didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) So I am extremely fortunate 
that both of my parents were extraordinary people. I'm sorry to say they're both passed away now. Um, they were my advocates. They fought for me, especially my mother. I can only imagine the look <laughs> that that administrator got. And actually, she told me as an adult that one parent-teacher conference ended with her pounding her fist on the table saying, I refuse to allow you to condemn my daughter. So I, she really fought. And then my dad was my cheerleader. He would say, Ellen, you know you can do it. Just prove him wrong. Just prove him wrong. Keep going. Don't give up. Just keep going. And that inspired me. You know, I had the support at home. And it was a united front. And had I not had that, I don't know what would have happened to me. It would have been awful. Um, but they really supported me to fight back and just persevere. And I worked very, very hard. I worked not twice as hard, but three times as hard as every other student. Um, and guess what? I did learn to read. <laughs> and I did go to college. And I even got a master's degree. So I proved them wrong. But the problem with all of that is the damage to my self-esteem and my self-worth was god-awful. I used to joke and say I didn't have low self-esteem, I had no self-esteem. I wasn't allowed to have self-esteem. I was the broken, brain-damaged, and forgive the term, retarded little girl. That's how they treated me. And that message was very, very clear. And it was all the way through high school. Low expectations, you know. And when I did well, they were surprised. Like, oh, wow, you've really overcome this. <laughs> Which I laugh at today. Because what I was really overcoming was their belief. It was their bias. Because I can learn. And I... I'm incredibly capable and intelligent. But they decided based on those test results that I was not going to be successful. It's interesting because I look back now and I remember having conversations with my mom. Even as a 10-year-old, she'd say to me, I don't understand. You're obviously so smart and so capable. It's as if they don't know how to teach you. And I think that's what it is. I'm convinced that I had to find a way to fit into a education model that wasn't designed for me. And that's not really my job as a six-year-old. <laughs> but I had to in order to survive. So I figured it out and persevered and just kept going and fought back. Uh, I was just determined to prove them wrong because they, they pissed me off. <laughs> they wrote me off and that made me mad. And that's perfectly understandable. So, um, and it's interesting because, you know, as the research continues on dyslexia and learning disabilities, it's really becoming apparent that my experience in understanding that I don't fit into the classroom, that they don't know how to teach me is really accurate. And the science is really starting to back that up. So I'm starting to feel very vindicated. <laughs> <laughs>
So just for frame of reference, I sure. want to come back to the self-esteem part. But yep. um, tell me what dyslexia is and also what it's not. And I don't, I'm going to get educated because I have what I think I know it is, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Yeah, it... It's generally associated, and I'm not going to give a definition because I don't have a definition memorized. Um, it's generally associated with reading difficulties, processing information difficulties, language difficulties, particularly spelling and grammar. Um, Is it it's the, the letters are backwards or are they not? It's That's very common. That wasn't so much of an issue for me. And everybody's a little bit different. Um, I definitely ran into that with numbers, but not with words and letters because it was pretty logical if something was backwards. Hmm. Unless you're looking at saw or was, it was obvious if it was backwards. So I could correct or compensate for it immediately. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Does that help? It does. Thank you. Yeah. And then on the the self-esteem, at what point in your childhood or preteen or adulthood were you able to comprehend the zero self-esteem was there a particular event um no it was just always there it was it had become so integrated into what i call my being or my blueprint that it was no matter what i did i was still a stupid little dyslexic girl that was always going to be part of who I was. So it was, it was tattooed on my being, if you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I had this terrible contradiction, you know, because I went away to college, did really well. My bachelor's is in allied health, which is not an easy degree. You know, I've never heard of that degree. What What is it? Allied health is, um, it's basically a BSN without clinical nursing one through four. Oh, okay. So you have all the sciences, chemistry, biology, um, genetics, kinesiology, exercise physiology. Not easy topics, not easy classes. And they did really well. Um, and then despite that accomplishment, I still had that label. Stupid dyslexic girl tattooed on my forehead. Just there was so much weight behind it. It was something I encountered every day as a child. <clears throat> sure. Um, and something else that happens, which is very common, is um, we are often the target of bullies. And I had a slight speech impediment as a very young child, which was quickly corrected, but that made me the target of bullies. Um, so school for me elementary school was a dangerous hostile environment where I had to fight through every single day and unfortunately my experience is typical from what I've read and from other people I've talked to uh, but to go back to answer your question about the awareness with the low self-esteem it wasn't until my mid-40s when I went to work with an amazing life coach um, Rafe Van Ray uh, thedailywayhome.com. Sorry, I have to give that out no, there. No, please, please. <laughs> Just an extraordinary man. And um, started working with him. And I, it was this huge revelation. He just had a way of saying it to me that verbally shook me. 
And what he said to me was, Ellen, that is the biggest bunch of bullshit I have ever heard. You have been gaslighted into believing that you are broken and stupid. And I kind of sat back and let his words sink in. And I thought, my God, he's right. And then through the rest of my work with him, we began to unravel all of that and how that it impacted me. Um, and how I, and we undid it together. we pulled it apart piece by piece <laughs> <laughs> and chucked it out the door. <laughs> Where it belongs. Where it belongs. <clears throat> So well, what was different about what he said in that way? Because in in as you're describing that, it sounds very similar to the support that your parents had given you, right? And that was maybe more. Um, uh, what's the opposite of acute? Um, I'm thinking cumulative, but not right. not chronic. But like it was consistent. Right? Consistent. They, they always That's a backed great word. you up, right? What was it about? And what was his name again? Uh, Reef. Rafe. Rafe. What was it about what he said and how he said it that got through? Or was it just, you know, part of the life experience where the the message was delivered at the right time? What what about that was so I, different? I think it's a kind of a combination of all of those things. Um, I was ready to just I'm gonna back up here a little bit. Please. So I had been through some uh, very nasty divorce. Um, and I was really willing to take a good, long, hard look at myself and reached out to Rafe because I was desperate to make changes. And I was willing to look at anything and everything that would help me to do that because I was not going to repeat that same experience that I had. And I think I was probably just really ready and I was ready to dig up whatever it was that was holding me back. And that was holding me back. That was the single biggest issue that was holding me back. There's a phrase that it was, I hope it wasn't from a fortune cookie. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so too. (laughs) But it's, it's pertinent and it's one of these things that I've always remembered. And it's when the voyager is ready, the guide will appear. Mm -hmm. Another way I've heard that is, um, when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. And I believe that's attributed to Buddha. Okay. Yeah. But same kind of, exactly. almost the same thing. Exactly. So, yeah. And I've, I've had the, the, man, I want to say the pleasure and the honor and the challenge of deconstructing myself in that same way. Mm-hmm. And I've also been blessed. And I take it as, as the highest praise that people have come up to me and confided some of their challenges. Mm -hmm. I have the same experience. And and it's the most wonderful thing because it is this unique level of trust Mm -hmm. that I feel honored when that happens. Mm -hmm. And what you had said about the, the, the desire to change. Yeah. And I don't, judge people because I know it's hard to be out on an island or a raft or whatever your metaphor is for this, what you're going through alone. And ultimately you are going through it alone. Mm -hmm. But I look at what 
work they're prepared to do. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a long setup to the the question of like, what was the work that you did with Rafe that started putting deposits into your self-esteem bank? Before I answer that question, <clears throat> I want to go back to something you said about people um, confiding in you. Sure. I th- One of the things I've noticed since I've been through this transformation is that I have the same thing happen. People will come up to me and they'll just start telling me those kinds of things. And I'm like, okay, I'm not quite sure where this is coming from. But I think people have a sense. And it's not necessarily a conscious sense. I think people can feel that you're not going to judge them. And I'm not going to judge somebody because I know how it is to be judged. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's where that safe feeling comes from. Um, But to answer your question about Rafe, so his context is about unlearning the things you need to unlearn. (laughs) <laughs> it's about ideas and uh, belief systems that have been imposed on you by often well-meaning um, parents, teachers, religious leaders, community leaders. Um, and basically what he does is he holds up a mirror to you so you can see these things for the first time. And when I started to learn all of this and stripped all that away, I got very clear on who the authentic Ellen is. And she's a really great person. (laughs) Um, There were still places, you know, seeds that hadn't been sowed for so many years, deep roots that I would still have to go and dig up, if you'll take the metaphor. But it was just about really getting in touch with the authentic person, who I was authentically, and then just embracing that. I think probably the most interesting part of working with Rafe was that when I let go of that identity of being dyslexic, I actually had to grieve that. Really? Yeah. For a couple weeks, I felt really, really lost and confused because I thought, well, if I'm not the stupid, broken, dyslexic girl, well, then who am I? Valid question. And and it was very disconcerting. And that's when I went down the road of, okay, who's the authentic Ellen? And just really focused on that. And what was the first part of the new authentic Ellen? Do you recall what that was? Yeah, I'd say... Um, I'm not a very religious person, but it was a spiritual piece. It was just, you know, I'm a kind and caring human being who is compassionate and is capable and intelligent and all of those basic things. Um, And then from there, it was about, it was about discovery about who I was in interacting with other people. It was about finding purpose. Um, 
for me, it's been about embracing a context of service as a way of being. Um, it's about learning to thrive because I wasn't allowed to thrive. And now all of a sudden I could, but the next question was how. <laughs> right. <clears throat> right. That one in particular, I want to uh, unwind a little bit. So sure. learning to thrive. Right. And I'm guessing there's limitations and that could be either self-imposed or perhaps the absence of skills, training, things like that. But when you were working on this, what was, what was that process like? Well, I guess I'm not even going to speculate. Tell me how you learned to thrive. And if you could give me a sure. specific example, that would be. Um, awesome. Well, I think the first thing I did was I looked back and realized that I already had an incredible set of tools. At 15, my father sent me on Outward Bound, mm. which was a phenomenal experience. Actually, it wasn't too far from here. It's two weeks on the Green River. And um, we did rappelling, rock climbing, navigating the river. Um, and this is another thing that I have to give my parents credit for in particular my dad he set out to teach my sister and I all kinds of life skills and he understood the value of learning outside of the classroom at age eight seven eight years old I remember standing on a bucket upside down and driving his boat <laughs> sweet he taught me how to navigate he taught me how to use his nautical charts. He taught me how to read the water, um, what the different buoys meant. And Channel I was mark. age eight? I was eight, nine okay. years old. Yep. Um, he put us into sports. He put us into every activity that we were interested in being a part of. Um, both my sister and I went on Outward Bound at 15. At 17, I was in, uh, I was learning scuba dive, which then was not very common. I had to get special permission because I was a minor. Um, so he was always encouraging us to do challenging things that would teach us those life skills. And I'm kind of answering your question in a roundabout way. So well, I'm tracking. I'm totally tracking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I know sometimes I lose people when I go in a big arc. Oh, no. My, I've got ADD. And I've got a butterfly mind. So I'm totally tracking. You're, you're, you're with me. Yeah. Um, so I looked back and realized, you know, I already had quite a skill set. I already had a lot of abilities and I also had the ability to fight through the hard things because I had to fight so damn hard through elementary and middle school and through high school. Um, I had learned how to deal with grueling at a very early age, which as an adult gives me a really big advantage. <laughs> um, and then, you know, started to look for ways, you know, what did, or 
ways to excel, what were the things I wanted to do, what did I want out of life, what mattered to me. Um, and that's when I stumbled onto um, Mark Devine's program. Um, I guess I should go a little bit into his... Yeah, explain all yeah. of that. Yeah. So Mark Devine is a retired Navy SEAL, um, 20 years of service. He um, has written several New York Times bestsellers, and he has in-person events as well as podcasts, online training. And I found out about one of the events, and it just hit me in the chest that I needed to go. I felt compelled to go. What was the event? It was, um, he used, it's a little bit different than the events that he does now. It was called the online, um, Unbeatable Mind Summit, where he would bring together all kinds of experts and speakers. Um, and they would talk about what they did. And then there would be other events, exercises, and then, of course, beach workouts or what the Navy SEALs call surf torture, <laughs> <laughs> which was great fun. Um, and... I even said to one of my coworkers, I said, I feel like I'm supposed to go do this. And he said, well, then you have to go do it because you'll always regret it if you don't. And it was a big stretch for me financially, but I got myself on a plane and got out from Boston to San Diego and went to the event. And um, Do you remember what exactly compelled you? It was my gut. Mm. My gut was just telling me, Ellen, you're supposed to go do this. And I decided to listen to that. Um. The speakers were incredible. You know, I, one of the speakers was Jimmy Chin, who was one of who summited Everest and then was the first to ski down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beth, um, ben Greenfield, who is a fitness guru, for lack of a better term, um, physiology expert, I mean, endurance athlete. Um, that's just to name name a few. And it really changed me. Um, and what was really interesting, and I know we talked about this a little bit, um, was the surf tor torture or the surf, um, we call it, um, the workout, beach workout. So to back up a little bit more, um, I, as I mentioned, was, uh, grew up, um, driving my dad's fishing boat. Well, we have summer home on Fire Island. So I grew up and literally grew up in the surf zone. Um, played in the surf all summer long, nonstop. You know, it, it was so bad. There were times when my dad would be yelling at me, Ellen, get out of the ocean. We have to go home for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the surf zone is a very comfortable place for me. Um, so I got out there. And they t divided us up into boat crews, just like they do in the, the SEAL training. And they took us out and put us through a lot of, you know, exercise, burpees, rolling in the surf, <laughs> arms locked together with your boat crew, waves crashing over your head. And I just had a blast. <laughs> <laughs> I turned into that six-year-old little girl again and I just I to me it was just joy it was just fun and it was funny because at one point I'm linked arms with 
two other people and our whole boat crew is linked together. And I look to one side and I look to the, and then I look to the person on the other side and they had this look of agony on their face. And I was like, my God, why are these people in such pain and suffering? I mean, the water was cold, but it wasn't that cold. Yeah. And, and then I realized it hit me. Not everybody grew up on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody learned to walk and got knocked down by the waves at the same time. And then I just immediately shifted into a helping role. And I started to teach these people, you know, the wave is going to pass. Take a breath before the wave hits. Just stay calm when you're under the water. It's going to pass. It's going to be okay. And then you're going to pop your head back up and you're going to be just fine. And I started yelling this stuff to the people who are around me. And um, we went through the rest of the exercise and of course, where you're that type of event, you're in and out of the water, you're doing burpees and you're back in the surf and then you're doing log rolls and then you're running up the beach and then you're back in the surf. It's just this continuous process for like an hour, hour and a half. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Said one person ever. <laughs> you. And then my group leader was a former Navy SEAL named Chris Smith. And we had the event, we all went back to our hotel room and got cleaned up and got ready for the rest of the day's events. And I was standing over by the coffee station and uh, just as we're ready to get the day going. And uh, he comes over to me and he says, girlfriend, you kicked ass on the beach. (laughs) I was like, huh? (laughs) I said, I just had a lot of fun. He's like, you had a smile on your face the entire time. He said, I think we got some fantastic pictures of you. Because they always have photographers taking pictures at Mark's events because they're always to document it and to take and to create more marketing material. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I said, oh, my gosh, I hope I didn't have any boogers on my face. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know being in the ocean and in the cold, you can often have that happen and you can't feel it. So yeah. you, you can't, cause you can't feel your face. Your face is numb. So, and he just nearly fell over laughing at me. <laughs> and then it was, you know, it, uh, it took me a few days and I really started to process that. And I realized that six year old girl was pretty freaking awesome. And she wasn't that broken, stupid dyslexic girl that everybody or the administrators told her that she was. So that was a big healing event for me. And it was really funny because when I came home, I said to my dad, I said, you know, remember all those times you were yelling at me to get out of the ocean? (laughs) (laughs) He said, yeah. And he said, well, this time somebody was yelling at me to get in the ocean. (laughs) And he was like, and I bet you had a blast. I said, of course I did. And then we just both burst out laughing. It was really funny. Well, the fact that you could do uh, nautical charts at, you know, two years after your dyslexia diagnosis is mm-hmm. incredible because that's spatial awareness and that's, you know, numbers and all sorts of things like that, too. And I'm going to yeah. throw a monkey wrench at you. Okay. You ready? So one of the particular talents that's been associated with those of us who are dyslexic is the ability to, for 3D spatial... What's the right word? Um, 
we, we see the world from a 3D angle or from a 30,000 foot view. Mm. And my dad taught me how to use his compass at a very early age. So I am oriented by the compass. I'm not oriented by left or right. It's not how I function. So when I go someplace, I, in my mind, will go up in the sky and say, okay, this is point A where I'm starting. This is point B. I have to head north and then slightly east. And that's how I navigate around the world. To me, left and right is insignificant. It only confuses me. It's not really a thing. Mm-hmm. I have to turn, you know, the, I see a, a trailhead or a map at a trailhead. Mm-hmm. And I have to tilt my head so that it orients to what I'm looking at. Right. Because I have to match the map to the picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when like some setting got screwed up on my phone for Google Maps and it was like direction or like north was always up. And then mm-hmm. the things traveling this way but i'm going this way <laughs> right you have like, to turn the map i right. was almost to the point where i just had to pull over and whatever that setting was figure it out because i can't overlay i think like you can how that actually looks yeah and and we are um we are particularly known for that ability i when i walk into a building a large building if i don't know my way around i actually picture the building in my head where I am and where I want to go. Hmm. And a lot of times I call it cheating. Um, but like if I check into a hotel room, one of the first things I look at is the hotel map that's on the back of your door. A, I always want to know where my emergency exits are and how far they are from my hotel. Another thing my dad taught me. Um, and B, it's how I'm orienting myself to the building. So when I walk out, I don't think left or right. I'm thinking where I am in relation, where I am in that building and hmm. in relationship to where I'm going. And I just make the turns that I need to turn, that I need to make to get there. So I'm so visual that if I navigate, I navigate by landmarks. And if, say like I've, I've taken mm-hmm. a particular route. Yep. And I come in halfway and mm-hmm. I don't see the order of like the Arby's and then the Dunkin' Donuts and then whatever. If it's out of sequence, I'll just be driving along going, oh, I should have been there probably 15 <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the ability to like visualize the turns. Yeah, that's. And that's very typical. Okay. Um, there are a very large number of architects and engineers. I've read one place 35% are dyslexic because we they actually build buildings in their mind before they put mm-hmm. it on paper so it's an extraordinary talent and these are the kinds of things nobody talked about when i was a child i don't think they even recognized that this was an ability at that time or that those of us blessed with a dyslexic mind have um these capabilities and that's just one example yeah Mm-hmm. I get it. I mean, it's standardized testing and it's a protocol and it's reading, writing, arithmetic, all that stuff. And then it's a distribution curve mm-hmm. and there's going to be outliers on either side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
again, this is not going to be an education discussion. Magic wand, it'd be great if everybody could have, you know, instruction that lent to their strengths. Mm -hmm. I hope that's where we're heading. And I agree with you, and I think that is correct. Everything I, I agree with everything you just said. But they did not need to destroy my self-esteem. Oh, absolutely. That was just, that was, that was, it was unprofessional. Um, when I got to high school, interesting little side note, um, they were so determined that I was not going to go to college that they wouldn't allow me to take a foreign language. <laughs> and as most people know, that's a requirement to get into most schools. My parents had to fight for me to be able to take a foreign language. And I did. And I did just fine. <laughs> what were your parents' careers? I mean, they, they sound like amazing people. And just what did they do for work? Sure. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. But prior to that, she had been... Um, she met my father working for Volkswagen. She was in charge of distribution for the um, all vehicles who came in to the mid-Atlantic state, states um, in the late 50s. She was the highest ranked and the highest paid woman in the firm. And she was in charge. <laughs> um, she went, met my dad there and then became a stay-at-home mom. So um, my dad worked for Con Edison and he ran all of their training schools. So... Con Ed is the power and lighting utility for the greater New York City area. And they had a fleet of vehicles. They had a diesel school, welding school, driving school. They had a whole series of training programs that were internal for um, employees. And he ran all of those programs. Um, so he retired pretty early and then he just went fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very happy. He actually retired at 55. Wow. Yep. Well, I love the outdoor component of that and then the life skills and all that. I mean, those are those are indispensable. That's what more people, not just kids, need is mm -hmm. these just basic things. He was determined, and he used to say this to my sister and I all the time, that you girls are going to be prepared for whatever life hands you, and I'm going to make sure of it. And I'm, I don't want you to ever have to be dependent on a husband. And he meant it. And in 1970, that was not a common thought process for men to raise their daughters that way. I'd say it's probably very uncommon. And it's, he also was adamant that we explore and try new things. But he was also very, very cautious. And he said, you can go do whatever you want to do, but you get properly trained. So if you want to go rock climbing, get properly trained. When I started scuba lessons, got properly trained and certified. And that really instilled a safety mindset. And um, you, know, you still get hurt. You can't mitigate all risks, but you can certainly <laughs> reduce the risk. <laughs> so I think that was, that was also teaching a thought process of thinking ahead. And I know you probably see it out on the trails, people who are out there who are just completely unprepared and don't belong out there. Oh, all the time. Yeah. 
all the time. Cotton sneakers, wearing cotton sweatshirts. Yeah. Everything I have in my backpacks or my bike bags, it's because I didn't have it one time. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I've never been in a true survival situation, but it was pretty darn uncomfortable. Yeah. And took the fun factor (laughs) (laughs) completely out of that. Yeah, throws it right out the window. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, you talked about, um, you know, going through a divorce and those are, you know, I've been through two and they're, they're never there. I don't know of anybody that's had one that's not at least mildly (laughs) unpleasant. (laughs) Exactly. You know, that was one of the turning points. That's, we didn't mention it over dinner, but that was when I was 28, maybe something like that. And Mm -hmm. that was when. That was kind of my realization that as an adult, I was not functioning at all. I had a job, two kids, a house, second house, you know, that I'd purchased as an adult, but I was not adulting at all. Mm -hmm. And it took that event to wake me up and say that I need to do a lot better. And like you, I had the desire that I just simply didn't want to feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And was, and it was the first time when I realized that my actions had results and consequences, Mm -hmm. both good and bad, but it was my decisions and my actions Mm -hmm. that was terrifying at first. It is. In your divorce, who left? Was it you or was it your husband? Who? No, I left. Okay. And for me, it was a matter of safety. Oh. I actually had to escape. We had had an incident of violence. I think that's about as politely as I can put it. (laughs) Um, No, I didn't leave right away. But when I finally figured out that it was time to leave and that I was not in a safe place, I could no longer trust him. I sought out the advice of an attorney, and she was adamant that I not have a discussion with him, that I just take what I want and go and just get out. And that's what I did. I had, um, my parents, again, were supporting me, um, as well as my sister. Um, We had a plan in place, and I just had to wait for him to not be around so I could pull that trigger. Um, I had things boxed and packed up and hidden away, things like taxes and stuff that I needed. Um, But I took a few personal things, like some clothes, some important paperwork and photographs, and my two dogs, and I got out. And I'm glad I did. And then, again, my parents took me in for a period of time. And uh, it it worked out. But that was, um, it was not a choice for me. It was not about working things out. I tried and tried and tried to work things out. And it... it, How long were you married? uh, Six years. Okay. Yep. Um... And I don't necessarily, I don't want to go down the husband bashing road. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's your show. (laughs) Um, He was not who he led me 
to believe he was. That's probably the best way to describe it. Um, and then I figured out that there was only one of us in the marriage and he just didn't care. And you can't work with that. It's just not, it's not workable. Going to row in circles if only <laughs> exactly. one oar is in the water. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I greatly appreciate my independence. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm having a lot of fun now. So, Good. Yep. Was there ever at any point, or, or did it just break? And did you ever, I guess what I'm asking is how many times did you get close to leaving before you actually did? Or was it just that? trigger event and it was just done it was interesting because i woke up at like five o'clock in the morning and i was just covered in sweat and i think my subconscious was screaming at me to just get out and it was a i was startled awake wow and i had been trying so hard just like i worked hard as a kid to power through things but I was, I was on the wrong path. I was in the wrong place. And um, at that point I knew, and that, that's when I started planning. And it took about a month for me to get out the door because I had to do it carefully. Sure, with the, the risk and threat yeah. of violence. With the threat of violence, I just needed to do, I needed to have a plan and I needed to execute it. And, and I did. So, and here's the kicker. He was shocked. (laughs) Going to let you in a little secret. Yep. Men are dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to go with that. I'm not going to touch that one. I'm not going to touch that one. So. Well, it's your parents sound absolutely amazing. I had no doubt that they were going to support you and Mm -hmm. do whatever. Yep. Were... Were they tracking at the same rate of seeing him not be the person that he said he was? Or was it a surprise to everybody? Um, no, I think it was a surprise to them. I really tried to hide it because mm. I was ashamed of it. <laughs> um, and I finally realized that there was just nothing that I could do that was going to make things work i remember being so embarrassed about my divorce that i for months didn't tell anybody Mm -hmm. because it was like you the the stamp on the forehead that was it overwhelmed everything that um was my identity above a parent above Mm -hmm. um anything And I was just so embarrassed, like, oh, my God, like this. I'm the only person in the world Mm -hmm. that's ever had this happen to him. Right. Right. You need to go out, buddy. Or you just want to leave. (laughs) (laughs) That'll work. Yeah. (laughs) Good boy. (laughs) Casey, the wonder dog. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I didn't want to be a divorced woman. Right. Who wants that? Nobody. Nobody wants to be divorced. Hi, sweetheart. (laughs) Somebody wants some attention. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
But you mentioned that you had, uh, your parents aren't around anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, let's talk about that. Sure. I mean, that, they seem just like amazing, wonderful people. Yeah. Um, sure. So I was staying with my parents because I had gotten away from my ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband. And I got the phone call we all fear. So it was about 10 months later, I guess. Um, Found a job, getting settled in, starting to recreate or create a new life for myself. And the phone rang. And I was really irritated because I thought it was a telemarketer. And I wish to God it had been a telemarketer. It was not. It was the nurse at the emergency room at Portsmouth Hospital in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which was about 20 minute drive, 15 minute drive away. And she asked who I was and she asked me my name. I had the same name as my mother. My mother was also Ellen Bush. And she said to me, do you know Ellen Bush? I said, yes, this is her daughter. And she said, okay, well, I need to inform you that your mother has been run over by a car. She's stable, she's intubated, but you need to come to the emergency room as soon as possible. And she said, don't rush, she's stable. And she said, do you know what it means when I say that she's intubated? And I said, yes, I was an EMT, I know what that Mm. means. So I quickly grabbed my dad. Um, We went separate vehicles, but um, I got there first. I got to the emergency room and um, to the waiting area and I gave my name and they left to go get me an escort. And I heard a voice behind me and it was a very tall man and, I, and he said to me, I'm the man who hit your mother. And I was shocked and I turned around and the man just tackled me with a hug. And I didn't know what to do. I just hugged him back. I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. He was obviously devastated. Um, And then I was escorted into the emergency room and it was full of police and firemen and a police officer who I now know was a detective stepped forward and handed me his business card. And he said, our thoughts and prayers are with you and your family at this time. I hadn't even seen my mother. And then I walked into her room and she was intubated and um, machines were breathing for her. And uh, she had a broken hip and basically the side of her head was caved in. And I knew at that moment I'd never speak to her again. It was um, shocking, traumatizing, every word that you can think of. Um, To make a long story short, we had family, you know, my dad arrived shortly thereafter. We had friends come we had uh, we moved her up to the ICU. Um, at first, we've had some hope that she might recover. I didn't really believe it. I mean, I understood what I was looking at. I know what a catastrophic head injury looks like. Mm-hmm. And we talked about moving her to Boston. Her care wouldn't have been any different. So we didn't do that. Um, we held vigil by her bedside for the next three days. Um, And then they told us that she was gone. She was brain dead. And then the next question my father asked was, um, can we donate her organs? 
and you know <laughs> I was shocked that his of his presence of mind um, but he and my mom had had those difficult conversations which I encourage everybody to do make your wishes known put everything in writing they had advanced directives they had all their estate planning done everything was clear and this was something that they had talked about so they called in the New England Organ Donor Services and um, they took us through that process. They were amazing. They took care of us as, as much as they took care of my mom. And um, they, they just did everything right. They explained everything. We went through paperwork. They read us the paperwork so we didn't have to focus on reading. That's how good they were. Yeah. They brought us food so we didn't have to leave the ICU. Um, you know, a, char a card of sandwiches and, you know, drinks and things like that. Um, and then we had a family member in New York City who we had to get up to, the, to New Hampshire. It was actually... Um, my uncle, my mom's brother. And uh, we said our goodbyes. It was just shocking. And I think we were all in shock for months. It was, but I'm so grateful that she was able to be an organ donor because there was going to be two funerals. And we prevented one. So her last act on this earth was to save somebody's life, a stranger, which is a pretty incredible way to go. So she was 74. Um, she was otherwise healthy. Very, very few people can be organ donors because basically you have to die healthy. Hmm. My father became an advocate and a speaker for New England Organ Donation Services and went around and spoke all over New England to anybody and everybody who would listen to our family story and to sign people up as organ donors. So it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Um, I think that's his way of coping too. I think it helped him a lot to get out there and just talk about it over and over again and tell the story. So keep her, <clears throat> keep her memory alive and inspire others with that, mm -hmm. you know, ultimate act of selflessness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we were told too, is that two separate people got a cornea. So two people got their vision back. So, um, but they were that, that that staff where they were they were incredible. They really took care of us. So, yeah. But what, I, I don't want to get too morbid. What happened? Sure. What was the accident? What exactly happened? It's a fair question. Um, she had been in the she had gone Christmas shopping, and was in the crosswalk, and it was a very dark, rainy, snowy night. <sighs> And the driver just didn't see her and ran over her. Yep. 
So, did you ever see that guy again? Nope. Um, the police did drug tests, urinalysis. They checked his phone. They impounded his truck to make sure there weren't any mechanical errors or issues, I should say. Um, he, there was nothing wrong. He was not drinking or driving. He wasn't texting. There was none of that. Um, he was charged. I don't remember what he was charged with. The detectives kept us informed um, and asked us if we wanted to attend any hearings or anything like that. We just chose not to. Um, and we were all in agreement with that. So, I mean, I went to the place of forgiveness for the driver. But I think it's because I met him. And I just saw his utter devastation. And he's a human being. How long did that process take to forgive him? It was pretty instantaneous. Really? Yeah. Because, but it's. I think it's because I met him. Hmm. Um, I'm going to back up. I'm going to say once we found out that there was no drugs or texting or anything like that, I really understood that this was a an accident. It was just an accident. It wasn't an on purpose. Had he been drinking, had there been texts going on, it would have been a very different response from mm -hmm. me and from my family. We would have been enraged, of course, but there was none of that. So once I knew that, I could just let it go. And I think I needed to. Um, I can't speak for my other family members, but um, that's how I that's how I felt. I just wasn't going to carry that around. I'll tear you up. Yeah. Yeah. I already learned about how negative emotions can just destroy you. So. Um, and had you started your work with uh, Rafe at that point? Or was this just sort of like, here, have some enlightenment forced upon right. you? <laughs> <laughs> um. No, I started working with him about a year later. And okay. that was one of the reasons. Because I still was coping with it. You know, you're still, I was still traumatized. So, you know, you know, trying to jumble the divorce, the sudden loss of my mom, recreating my life. It's like, whoa, okay, I got to get my arms around this stuff and make sure that I don't go back down any of those roads that I have already been down. Because I'm not repeating that. No way. So it was just another um, push to work with Rafe. I think it says a lot about your parents that all those lessons and messages over the years that you could objectively evaluate this horrible accident, mm -hmm. the loss of your mom, mm -hmm. and somehow i don't know pragmatic is the right word but i think objective is maybe the best word yeah that you could evaluate that and then land in forgiveness i think it's high praise for your parents i agree with you yeah yeah and then Thank what you. happened with your dad um i actually stayed and took care of him for the next five years um that way he could stay at home 
he had a internal pacemaker defibrillator. Mm. So he was able-bodied. He still fished. <laughs> um, and he was happy to, you know, be at home. He didn't need assisted living, um, but he couldn't be by himself. So, excuse me, as we moved through that grieving process, you know, I stayed with him and just ended up staying in the house with him. And I was happy to do so. He was a good man. He was a great dad. Um, we always got along really well. Um, it wasn't perfect, but we got along really well. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, he was out. He was actually walking my dog. Um, and we don't know. He was out in the community and where we lived was an HOA. So it was a nice housing development. And uh, we don't know if the defibrillator went off and caused him to fall or if he fell and then the defibrillator went off, but he went down and he hit his head and he was on a blood thinner. And as a result, um, he ended up with an uncontrolled brain bleed and within 24 hours my sister and I were back in that same ICU yeah fortunately not the same room um and we made the decision to remove the life support so which was absolutely appropriate at that point um, he was not an organ donor he wasn't um he didn't qualify he wasn't brain dead he just had a brain bleed. So that was, he might have gotten, it might have gotten to that point, but it wasn't appropriate clinically. That's probably the best way to put hmm. it. So, um, yeah. And that was how long after your mom? That was April 23rd, 2019. So mom passed away in 2013. So about five years. Yeah. Yep. Five, six years. So. Yep. So, and then after clearing his estate and um, getting laid off because of COVID, I took a leap and followed my dream and moved here to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a big leap. <laughs> I think in context, given everything you've been through is moving across the country is probably not the biggest challenge you've ever faced. Exactly. Well, <laughs> it's so funny because I was talking with Owen and he's like, you've done such a beautiful job with this transition to Colorado. And I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm like, oh, and this hasn't been that hard. <laughs> he's like, oh, really? I said, yeah, really, compared to some of these other things. So, yeah. Yeah. Was there, uh, did you want me to, read that letter yeah I, i'm happy to share this i just can't read it and, sure and maintain my composure sure so this letter is from the daughter of the man who received my mother's liver okay and this is a cold read on my part so i haven't seen this so forgive me as, yep. <laughs> as i read through this but a brief message from the survivor's daughter dear donor family Thank you very much for your organ donation. Because of this, my mother has her life partner back. My daughters have their grandfather back and I have my father back. My father got very sick very quickly. 
It was on the Thanksgiving day in 2013 that he got admitted to the emergency room and immediately got transferred to the medical intensive care unit. Two days later, he started to get confused because the toxin in his body started to accumulate and affected his brain due to his liver failure. After two more days, he went into a coma. Doctors were evaluating him several times a day, hoping that he wouldn't get any complications and his body would stay good enough to receive a transplant should a matching organ arise. But things didn't get as smooth as we had hoped. He had pneumonia several days into the coma, then his kidneys started to fail as well. As his family, we didn't know what to expect. Everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong. With the two young babies and a mother who doesn't speak English, I personally had to juggle many balls at one time. My father was basically living one day at a time, then one hour at a time. My mother and I started to talk about things like burial and funeral. One day, the transplant surgeon called and told us that there was a potential donor. After the last round of evaluations, my father received a transplant that same evening and he woke up from his coma that very next morning. Because of how sick he was before the transplant, he had to stay in the ICU for another week after the surgery before he could get on the transplant floor. By the New Year's Day, he was discharged from the hospital. He now enjoys his time with his two young granddaughters. He picks up his old hobby of drawing. He plans to teach kids drawing when his conditions become better. He hopes to be able to return to China sometime to see his mother sometime this year. Although my father was the one who was sick, it was my mother, my husband, and I who had to experience every pinch of that pain during those several weeks. We felt that we hit the bottom of our lives, but through this experience, we learned and were inspired. We all talked about being a potential organ donor. My mother is now seeking opportunities to volunteer at the transplant hospital. She's actively learning English to make that possible. We share this story with people who we know, including my father. We would like to let you know that your relative's liver enabled my father to have his second life. We hope that you're proud of your decision. We hope that you understand that we're very grateful and will not take it for granted. May God bless you and may he watch over you and your loved ones from above. And may your beloved relative now rest in peace in heaven. He or she left something very special behind. It's more than an organ. It's a gift. It's a life. It's an inspiration. And it's a very empowering message. It's a miracle. How about that? I understand why I couldn't read it. <laughs> I was having a hard time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. Thank you for bringing that. Yeah. Very very um very glad that we got that letter. That really it changed the dynamic of loss and gave it some meaning. So like I said, otherwise it would have been a meaningless accident. So, but somebody else got to go home who wouldn't have otherwise been able to go home. So, yeah. <laughs> this is um, one of the two or three more powerful 
conversations I've ever had. And so I just want to thank you for the the work you put into the the preparation for this and especially for that letter. That was something that um you know, when we talked about just before, that was that was an amazing experience. I just want to thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Um by sharing that I'm continuing what my father did and what they're continuing to do too. So I think the biggest thing about organ donation is there just needs to be more awareness and for people to understand that their relative or them will be treated with dignity and respect and be taken care of. I will, um, if you have resources to that effect, I'll post those when I post the episode. Okay. And I'm pretty sure I am an organ donor to my wallet. I will, as as a as a show of respect and a thank you, I will make sure that I'm signed up appropriately. Oh well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Yep. It's a heck of a story. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're still telling it. Yeah. Because I don't think it's done. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. And there's um. There's a lot more to do and a lot more experiences to have and I'm excited about moving forward. So, Well, I've got some titles for how to describe you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would just say that you are a resilient, uh, inspiring individual. And I think the most difficult thing to do is just to persevere. Mm-hmm. And you are a very tangible example of that. You know, it's interesting because, and thank you for that. That's very kind. Um, the first Mark Divine event, Unbeatable Mind event that I went to, there was still a lot I was trying to figure out. And one of the things I was trying to figure out was how I got through all of this and I didn't understand how I did. And then I remember him up on the stage and talking about how they get through Navy SEAL training and they just keep going. And it hit me and I was sitting there listening to him. That's what I did. I just kept going. And that's all you have to do is you just have to keep going. You can't quit. You can't give up. No matter how small, it's just one, a millimeter forward is still forward. It's still forward. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And when you learn how to... trying to think of what's the right word I want to use here. Um, When you learn how to heal and own these events, you own them. They don't own you. And that becomes even more of a push forward because you're the one who's empowered. 
I've found that even the illusion of some control or some decision making or like even again, like the illusion of that power over the, the circumstance and not sugarcoating it and not going into delusion, but just thinking that I, I can do one thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to choose what's going to happen next is so powerful. And I think that's the operative word is choice. Yeah. You have choices. Yeah. Um, and as Catherine Devine will tell you, sometimes it's about just breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine is yeah. Mark's stepdaughter. Okay. And she um, teaches, and Mark does as well too, breath work and meditation. Um, and she'll be the first one to say, just breathe. Just breathe. <laughs> Well, Ellen, this has been just uh, an honor and a pleasure and such a, just a wonderful surprise. Well, thank and, you. And thank you for sharing all these wonderful stories. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for giving me the platform to share them. Seriously, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen Bush, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a great experience. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple transistor or spotify and i know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest and if you do please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com thanks for listening